Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 80, Bulgarians in the Early Years of Ottoman Domination. First, as always, I have to thank our new patrons and just supporters. So, on new on Patreon, we've got Bonnie Stoev and Ivailo Gerasimov, and a new kind of donator through PayPal, Timothy French. Thank you so much, all of you, for your support. Uh, been been a kind of a nice wrap-up to the year. In fact, shortly, I'm going to be posting a kind of summation of the year, all kinds of numbers, all kinds of news, everything that's been happening. But I guess this is just my moment to really thank all of you for everything you've done as listeners and supporters uh, during 2018. It's really made it a remarkable year for the podcast, by far the biggest year uh, as far as new things and new changes that we've ever had. So last time, we finished up with season four, with the Ottoman expansion stopped in the Persian Gulf, in the Mediterranean, and in Hungary, along with the death of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent while on campaign in Hungary. So today, I want to talk about the longer-term effects, or kind of longer-term elements of life under Ottoman rule during these first two centuries. I'm going to focus on what life was like for Bulgarians in particular, because their life within the empire during these centuries is quite different than the more famous periods later in the 19th century. And later on, I'm going to touch briefly on the Roma in Bulgarian lands during this period and a little bit before. But you know, the overall thing is just that, you know, there are all these very slow moving changes that don't fit neatly into the regular narrative. And so I wanted to take this moment to really talk about those things. So I want to begin with a kind of overview of how the onset of Ottoman rule affected various groups within Bulgaria. First, your average peasant farmer. Now, This population declined during the first decades of Ottoman rule, though the effects will vary from place to place. Now, for some of these people, Ottoman rule meant lower taxes. Great. For others, it meant highly disruptive raids and warfare. Not so great. For others, particularly those along the roads, which Ottoman armies were taking to go fight the Europeans, they faced a lot of disruption, probably a lot of uh, attacks and massacres. We know there were cases like when Sofia kind of aligned with the Hungarians, that this meant stern reprisals on the part of the Ottomans. Uh, Without a doubt, though, just having Ottoman armies pass back and forth over particular bits of land was very disruptive. And so the point here is mostly that Ottoman rule was generally not, at least in the early decades, not that good for the average kind of Bulgarian peasant farmer, though with some exceptions. Um, Again, if if you were a Bulgarian peasant farmer that was going through hard times during the chaotic last years of the Second Bulgarian Empire, it's entirely possible that life actually got a bit better for you during this time. Um, Now, furthermore, there, there were, you know, you can divide these peasants into other groups because there's also religion. Now, if you were a member of an Orthodox sect like the Bogomils, good for you because you no longer had a central government which really cared very much about how you practice your religion. So that was nice. This also kind of extends to the Jews of the empire. And I'll talk a bit about the Milet system later, but 
In essence, if you were Jewish living in Bulgaria, great. Now you were basically on equal footing with Christians. You were still second class citizens relative to Muslims, but you know, you weren't as far down as you had been before. Now, speaking of the kind of everyday Bulgarian peasants, uh, you've heard me discuss in recent episodes the devshirme, right? The blood tax, when children were taken from their parents uh, after around the age of seven and made slaves of the sultan and turned into the Janissary Corps, as well as kind of a, a lot of the administrators of the empire. Now, as I mentioned, this is much more complex than is usually portrayed, uh, without a doubt a horrific experience for many Their children were taken away to foreign lands to be converted to a foreign religion. But for some, this was a way to a better way of life. Uh, So again, just that bigger point. Overall, Devshirme wasn't one thing. Uh, It wasn't one single thing over time. It wasn't one single thing at any one time for individual families experiencing it. Now, what about for the kind of merchants in Bulgaria? Well, again, a bit of a mixed bag. Now, depending on their specific commercial interests, this would kind of change a lot of things. So depending on that, incorporation into the Ottoman Empire could mean lower taxes and greater access to markets, or it could mean higher taxes and lesser access to markets. Again, it kind of depend depended on whether or not they were primarily trading with areas within the empire or not. You know, eventually, Bulgaria would become very highly tied into Uh, the city of Constantinople, where within the Ottoman Empire, Bulgarian lands were where a lot of things were kind of manufactured that were then used by the central government and by the army. And so, you know, for those merchants, they had much better access to these markets and people who would buy their wares relative to before. And in particular, in a long time, I'll talk about this, when Bulgaria became independent, all of a sudden, a lot of these merchants and businesses no longer had easy access to markets that they did while they were part of the empire. But on the other hand, let's say you were a merchant and your kind of main you know, place you were selling your things was in Western Europe. Well, that just became a lot harder to to really access. So, you know, it depends and it really varied. Again, maybe you were facing higher taxes before. Maybe you converted to Islam and got much slower taxes. A lot of variance there, but it depended just a lot on what your business was, where you lived, what choices you made. Now, what about the elites? Now, many Bulgarian scholars, for example, left for Wallachia, Moldavia, or Russia. I think I mentioned that at the end of the last season. But what this did is really deprived Bulgaria of what had been up to that point of a vital part of its society, these scholars and, and you know, men of letters. But we should all remember also that, you know, by the time the Second Bulgarian Empire fell, the instability of the state meant that its scholarly output was way below what it had once been. So, yes, it, it was a real tragedy for Bulgaria to lose these people, but also, you know, they were nowhere near what this they were as a group. Uh, during the kind of glory days of uh, you know the time when the Cyrillic alphabet was being developed, for example. Now, for the political elites, the coming of Ottoman rule meant, well, death, capture, exile northward, or, if they so chose, conversion to Islam. For example, remember that one of the sons of Tsar John Shishman did convert to Islam and became an Ottoman commander before eventually dying in Anatolia. Overall, though, the Bulgarian royal family really faded from history by around the 16th century. So, you know, the time of Suleiman around the period that we're covering is a time where we lose track if there were any 
kind of remaining ancestors of the Bulgarian royals left. Now, over the first two centuries, though, the makeup of Bulgarian towns, kind of shifting to a more geographical focus here, uh, did change quite dramatically. That was where more Ottoman Turkish settlers came, and over time, Turkish became the primary language in many of these towns. Uh, historian and rector of Sofia University, Ivan Ilchev, makes a good point here, though I will say overall his book, The Rose of the Balkans, is generally a bit too nationalistic, and I don't tend to like it, but there are some bits that I think he does a good job kind of laying out, and this is one of them. So he says, quote, Colonists from Asia Minor gradually settled in the Balkan plains and foothills, particularly in the regions where they could feel at home in one way or another. They settled amidst the Christian population, part of which was driven away, another was assimilated, but there still remained one that stubbornly held on to its usual traditions. Hundreds of Muslims, or mixed Christian Muslim villages, appeared on the map. There, the representatives of the two peoples lived together, as they had no other choice. They influenced each other, the Turks learning a little Bulgarian and the Bulgarians a little Turkish. A usual mode of conduct gradually settled down on a daily level after the first turbulent decades had passed. While the two communities lived their own isolated lives, they nevertheless had to take into account the people around them. A balance was established, albeit not particularly stable, based on the common problems and common tasks which they had to solve. An equity of even the most elementary sense was not achieved, though. The Muslims were perfectly well aware that they were the dominant stratum of the empire. Now, in court, claims of Christians stood little chance of being resolved in their favor. Nevertheless, at least they had the theoretical possibility of filing claims, while at the same time the serfs of the Kingdom of France could not even dream of such rights. Large regions of Bulgarian territory, particularly in the northeast and southeast, acquired a Muslim aspect. End quote. So we can see there, you know, areas where kind of Christians were mingling with Muslims, how you could see these towns gradually, you know, Turkish became a, a common language there, and about how these really became communities uh, and mixed communities, something that will eventually kind of define how we see much of the Ottoman Empire. Um, also that, you know, the kind of Turkish settlers didn't settle equally in all places, that northeastern and southeastern Bulgaria were particular places where uh, they settled in much larger numbers, and that, you know, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more about this in a moment, but that there were Ottoman court systems. And yes, Christians could, you know, bring court cases against each other and against non-Christians, and yet this was an imperfect system and that, you know, Muslims certainly had an advantage when they were involved because, you know, two Christians could also bring claims against each other. But that, you know, the, just the very existence of this system was much ahead of what you'd find in generally in the rest of Europe. And I think that's a, an important point when we really think about the Ottoman Empire as a whole, and, and particularly during this period, is what, what we judge it against. You know, it's easy for a Bulgarian to look at this Ottoman period and say, yeah, you know, what we brought a court case against uh, a Muslim, we were very, very unlikely to win this because of kind of discrimination based on religion. And in that sense, they're kind of comparing this to uh, some hypothetical ideal, you know, how they think things should be. But that's really not a fair comparison. What you should be comparing it to is, you know, the, the most comparable things, other states, similar states nearby. And in those cases, even though Bulgarians were still quite disadvantaged, 
you know, they actually were better off than in many ways, not always, than uh, say a French or a Russian peasant, for example. Now, kind of another broad look at the experience of Bulgarians during this period, I wanted to quote Oxford historian R.J. Crampton. He put it as, quote, the vigorous but self-righteous Christians of the Victorian era created the impression that their co-religionists under Ottoman domination had suffered continual persecution for 500 years. It was not so. Ottoman history is certainly not free from terrible incidents of hideous outrage, but in Europe, these were occasional. Many, if not most, followed acts of rebellion. And if this does not excuse the excess, it perhaps goes some way in explaining it. Other outbursts were spontaneous, localized, and random, the result usually of a peculiar combination of personal, political, social, or economic factors. It would not be unwise to imagine the Ottoman Empire as some form of lost, multicultural paradise. But on the other hand, it would also be wrong to deny that at some periods of its history, the empire assured for all of its subjects, irrespective of religion, stability, security, and some reasonable degree of prosperity, end quote. In other words, from the 19th century until today, the, the, the greatest sin in how we view this period remains the same, is that we, we view it as one single thing. You know, it's, it's absurd to pretend that hundreds of thousands of people over centuries all had some singular experience. I mean, I would kind of make the analogy that this is almost like looking at the entire history of the United States as a country from 1776 until now and just saying that, oh, it was this or it was that or, you know, African-Americans or German-Americans or some group of people all had this experience during that entire period. I mean, I say that now and it sounds absurd, like you, you couldn't possibly generalize that, generalize that much, but that's really what we do when we look at the Ottoman Empire. I think Crampton does a good job of kind of pointing that out and that often the contrast that's drawn is that, oh, if you don't see the Ottoman Empire as this sort of brutal, evil, you know, crushing, uh, awful, anti-Christian monster, then you obviously must see it as a lost multicultural paradise. Uh, You know, people will tend to just portray everyone on one or another extreme, but really the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, and not that the truth was always in the middle, but that it's shifting. You know, there were brutal times, there were peaceful times, there were prosperous times, there were not prosperous times. And I'll kind of build a little bit more on that uh, towards the end of this episode. But now I want to talk a little bit about the administration and how Bulgarians were governed during these two centuries. Now, from 1494, the millet system was established. Muslims, Orthodox, and Armenian Christians, as well as Jews, uh, unofficially though for the first few centuries uh, before the Jews became an official millet, each one of these groups ran their own internal affairs, including their religious life, property and family law, and education. But importantly, each millet was under the Muslim one. Obviously, the Muslim one was the preeminent one. So, for example, if two Orthodox Bulgarians had a dispute, it would be handled by the Orthodox millet. But if an Orthodox Bulgarian and a Muslim Bulgarian had a dispute, it would be handled by the Muslim millet. So one important byproduct here was that the Ottoman Empire really did not recognize ethnicity. 
They made no formal distinction, for example, between Bulgarians, Greeks, and Serbs. It did, however, make a distinction between Orthodox and Muslim Bulgarians, for example. Now, this hasn't had many practical implications during these two centuries we just covered, but trust me, it will have very, very important ramifications as we go forward. And it really speaks a lot about the Ottoman worldview and the view of the Ottomans as to how the world should be governed and how it should be kind of understood. Now, because the Orthodox millet was dominated by Greeks, Bulgarians and Serbs were, to quote R.J. Crampton again, second-class citizens in the second-class millet. Again, this fact isn't so important for this season, but it's vital to keep in mind as it will be at the center of major events in Bulgarian history in the centuries to come. The governing of Bulgarian lands was far more centralized under the Ottomans than it had been under the Second Bulgarian Empire. Remember back to the chaos of the Second Empire's rule, uh, the later stages of it at least, when various local rulers repeatedly carved off small portions of it for themselves. These are times when boyars ran things, while at other times a strong tsar willing to control the state might step up and make everyone do what he wanted. Now, there was a degree of local autonomy during the first two centuries of Ottoman rule. Remember that often the armies were, which were kind of engaging in raids and conquest for the Ottomans were commanded by Constantinople, but local governors also had the authority to raise small armies and expand the empire on their own. So sometimes, you know, some raid into Croatia, for example, was run by a local pasha, which really had very little to do with uh, the central government in Constantinople. Now, while later in its history, the Ottoman Empire will be divided into administrative units called vilayets, much like a modern state, during this time, the kind of internal division of the empire was based on the timar. A timar was a unit of land given by the sultan to a person generally a sepahi or even a janissary, who would kind of run that land, you know, use it or do whatever with it in exchange for being expected to provide money or soldiers in time of war. This system was established around the time that Bulgaria was conquered and was mostly phased out by the death of Suleiman. So really, this is the primary system during these two centuries that I just covered. And really what the Timar system was, was the Ottoman form of feudalism. Timars were not designed to govern the empire or to collect taxes more efficiently. Their aim was to facilitate the money and soldiers necessary to expand the empire. In fact, often the Timars themselves were what pressured the Sultan to expand the empire. Various imperial officials would demand Timars in exchange for their service, and so the empire would have to, you know, conquer new lands in order to gain the land which they could distribute in order to accommodate those imperial officials. But just what I want you to kind of keep in mind here really is that the Ottoman Empire's administrative divisions, the way it did everything was designed for military expansion. That was the number one goal and focus of how the empire was run. Now, these Timars were obviously what governed the lives of most Bulgarians who generally lived in villages of between 150 and 200 people. The owners of these Timars were responsible for arresting lawbreakers, though it took imperial courts to actually give out punishments. Still, you know, local enforcement was their job. And the men who ran the Timars 
remember this, did not actually really own the land. Ottoman government policy was that all land was owned by the Sultan, all of it. And much like with the Janissaries, right? This was not hereditary. And so similar, right? The Janissaries are slaves of the Sultan and their position technically, though this will change over time, can't be given to a son or a daughter. So if I'm a person who runs a Timar um, and I die, the land goes right back to the Sultan who can decide what he wants to do with it. He could keep it. He could give it to uh, a kind of monastery or, or some mosque to help uh, run a religious organization. He could give it to a new person as he wishes. But I'm just sort of getting a, a lease, right? I'm, I'm allowed to use the land for a set period of time or for my lifetime. And, you know, based on that, this could be changed, right? If a Sapahi failed to maintain the land or failed to provide the necessary military service, their Timar could just be taken and given to someone else. But the reason this system was really declining in the Ottoman Empire was simply that the realities of military organization were changing. The Timar system was designed to provide cavalry and infantry, not artillery and rifles. Right? If you're running a little Timar, you can provide a horse and a soldier, but it's not like you have the money or the resources to manufacture or provide you know, the latest high-tech military equipment. And so as military technologies and maneuvers became more complex, there was more of a need of a permanent standing army, which would be kind of supplied by a central government through taxes. Um, you know, the local people providing just wasn't going to cut it anymore. And for that to happen, the Sultan no longer really needed soldiers as much as they needed cash. And so over time, as Sapahis died, instead of assigning the Timar to a new person, they were simply taken back under imperial control and often transitioned into a tax farm uh, to more efficiently provide revenue to the government instead of just soldiers. Still, there was a kind of greater structure above the Timars uh, to the Ottoman Empire during this period though it was a pretty loose structure. So technically, the empire was divided into eyalets, which were, each of which was ruled by a pasha, and these were subdivided into sanjaks, ruled by a sanjak bey. Originally, the empire was divided into a European and an Anatolian elayat, but by around 1500, this had become four, and by 1609, I'll attach an image of this, there were around 34 elayats dividing the whole empire. In 1609, there were also 24 Sanjaks in the Rumelia Elayet. So if you imagine, you know, there's 34 Elayets, and within this example one, which comprised most of Bulgaria, there were 24 Sanjaks. And yeah, this was basically all Bulgaria minus the Black Sea coast. Now, one important element of how all these provinces were ruled from the Timar system on up was that the empire tried to have areas ruled by men who did not have old, deep ties to the place they were governing. In other words, they did not want a Bulgarian boyar, who had even one who had converted to Islam, ruling his family's ancestral lands. They would much rather he go far away off somewhere else and do his thing there. The idea here was to reduce rebellion and ensure that no one could build their own independent power structure separate from the Ottoman state. They wanted to really move people around. And you can see this with uh, the Janissary system as well, right? You, you remove people from their kind of where they're from and you train them in Constantinople and then send them out to help run the empire and things. 
Now, it's no surprise that the taxes that were paid during these early centuries of Ottoman rule were largely by timar holders. That was the main source of revenue for the Ottoman government. Now, the complex system of taxes associated with the Ottoman rule in Bulgaria comes later. So the different taxes for Christians and non-Christians, that, that was more of a later development. But, of course, the exception is the Devshirme. Now, on the topic, though, of forced conversions, this is a very touchy subject, one that a lot of uh, people talking about Bulgaria's kind of time in the Ottoman Empire mention. Now, many people will tell you that the principal goal of the Ottoman Empire was to convert its entire population in the world to Islam by the sword. Now, personally, I've always felt that was a bit silly, because if that was their goal, then Boy, they were shockingly bad at it. I mean, they, they had more than five centuries to achieve this and really didn't do it or even come close. But, you know, the reason that that seems silly in that sense is that that was not the central goal of the Ottomans. Now, while their goals shifted slightly from Sultan to Sultan, and as everything did, as I've said many times, in general, the Ottoman Empire was an empire above being a sort of expression of the Islamic faith. In other words, it was more important to keep the empire strong than to be perfect Muslims or to convert everyone to Islam. Now, this makes sense if you think of it this way. How many religious people do you know who genuinely put the strict practice of their their religion above really everything else, including their, say, material interests? Now, those people are out there, but you probably don't know so many. And think of the Ottoman Empire that way. You know, it's a religious empire. Muslims are the sort of preeminent group within the empire. However, you know, if given the choice of, you know, being great Muslims and having a very powerful expanding empire, they go for the latter pretty much every time. And the bigger point here is that while there were at times forced conversions, this did happen, though quite rarely, you know, to be clear, it's technically against Islam, but that's another point that the Ottoman Empire did violate the faith at times. So yes, Christians were made to be second-class citizens, and that encouraged them to convert if they wanted to be, you know, first-class citizens. But later in its history, the Ottoman Empire would actually even discourage conversions because it had the potential to cause social upheaval. Again, maintaining order was more important than conversions to the one true faith uh, in their eyes among uh, of those running things. So while many Bulgarians converted to Islam of their own accord to gain more wealth or power, for example, many others essentially became Greek for similar reasons. Being Greek was more sort of prestigious, and so they did that. And really, sort of speaking Greek and claiming yourself as Greek wasn't that much different in why you were doing it and, and the process. Now, the preservation of the Bulgarian language and culture, therefore, happened mostly in the villages. You know, here there was no need to speak Greek for commerce. There was no uh, reason to speak Turkish uh, and to communicate kind of with uh, tax collectors or other officials. And so the villages really did kind of preserve these Bulgarian elements. And the church also played a vital role here with the higher echelons of the church being dominated by Greeks, but still local village churches were usually run by Bulgarian priests who could act with great autonomy. Another vital area was monasteries. During and immediately after Ottoman conquest, these were in really terrible shape. They were suffering from a lack of funds. Some of them had to move to areas where the Ottoman armies traveled less because they were being raided and, and sort of uh, pillaged by those armies. 
and others managed to gain special tax-exempt status in order to secure the income to maintain the monastery. So there's another example. You know, the central government of the Ottomans was willing to give special tax-exempt status to some Christian monasteries. This did happen on occasion. And at this point, I, I want to move and mention something I've talked about before, but I think is worthy of mentioning in this episode, and that's the use of the word slavery to describe the position of the Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire. Now, on the one hand, it was a real revelation to me when I finally understood that the main reason the word slavery is used by Bulgarians in English is that it is the literal translation of the Bulgarian word robstvo. Um, but the word robstvo in Bulgarian has a more expansive meaning than slavery. And so the translation to sla- into English of the word slavery is partially just a translation issue and that there isn't a better word for it. But I still think it's worth kind of addressing the problematic nature of using that word in English. Slavery, to be clear, is the ownership of one human being by another human being. Slavery existed in the Ottoman Empire. The Janissaries were slaves of the Sultan, for example. But individual Christian subjects were not sort of purchased and sold. They did not have owners. And so using this term to refer to a, simply to a subject people of the empire, I think, cheapens the word. It, it makes it have far too expansive a definition. In, in a world where we're still reckoning with the history of African slavery in the Americas, where modern-day sex slavery still exists, cheapening the word by expanding its definition shouldn't be tolerated. And so, you know, we face the question of, okay, what word to use? Honestly, there's no perfect easy answer. I choose domination. I know some Bulgarians think that's too light a word, but I don't know, until I hear a better one. I mean, slavery is really out of the question. Domination, I think, works, but, you know, I'm I'm always open to suggestions and ideas uh, about how we should talk about this, but it is important to kind of choose our words carefully here. Um, All right, now, as we're kind of wrapping up, I wanted to briefly discuss the Roma, also known as gypsies, in Bulgaria, uh, as I also haven't had an occasion to mention them up until now, and they've been around for a few centuries, and so I want to kind of briefly mention who they were and where they came from. So the first Romani people came to the Balkans from, we think, northern India and around the 14th century. There's some speculation they came a few centuries earlier than that, but we have kind of hard records of them in the 14th century. And so this is around the same time the Ottoman Empire is really establishing itself. And, you know, we get our first records around the reign of Tsar Theodor Svetoslav. By the time the reign of Suleiman, records of his state, you know, administrative records, indicate that there were around 66,000 Romani people in the Balkans, 47,000 of whom were Christians, and most of the rest were Muslims. Of those 66,000, around one-third lived in Bulgaria. Now, importantly, records also indicate that even the Roma who were Muslims paid a non-Muslim tax, indicating that there was some pretty serious discrimination against them even at that point, where even, you know, there are specific court records where uh, a, a Roma person is saying, listen, you know, I'm Muslim. My father was a Muslim. I pray five times a day. You know, I, I tithe when I can. I do all the things a Muslim should do. And yet you're telling me I need to pay the non-Muslim tax and sort of appealing to the Ottoman court system to rectify this. And so, you know, even during this period, we can see some real discrimination against the Romani people. And of course, that that goes into today. We'll talk about that a lot uh, in the next few seasons of this podcast. Um, 
Now, we don't know a lot about the Romani people during these early centuries. I mean, they were certainly nomadic. They had their own language. You know, a lot of the kind of cultural elements we associate with them today were probably present, but we don't have too many kind of firsthand accounts. But as I mentioned, in the next few seasons, we'll have a lot more information about them. Now, to sum everything up, I want to take another quote from Ivan Ilchev. Quote, The basic problem which Bulgarians of those ages had to face was not so much the religious and economic discrimination or the outrages of Muslim neighbors and central authorities, but rather that they were torn from Europe. When Western Europe was developing in leaps and bounds, when Gutenberg's invention was flooding the continent, when the first factories of modern type were beginning to be built, when fleets of ships brought knowledge about distant parts of the world, a new outlook of the world and where ideas of humanism were born, the Christians of the Balkans lived behind a wall. End quote. So that doesn't apply as much to the last two centuries, but I think it's a nice look forward to the next season where, you know, there, there hasn't been a whole lot that uh, Bulgarians have been missing out on, although Gutenberg's, uh, you know, Gutenberg's Bible and movable text, all this is definitely one of those things. But the gap between the Ottoman Empire and the rest of Europe is going to start expanding. You know, up until now, the Ottoman Empire has actually often been more technologically advanced, at least when it comes to military technology. Um, though, you know, Europe has pretty much caught up over the last two centuries. That gap is going to be expanding. And so that's going to be really the one of the bigger trends uh, that we're going to see going forward. And so I want you all to keep an eye out for it. So that's going to be it. During uh, January, we're going to get two recap episodes where I'm going to do the usual run through of all the things that happened in the last season before in February, kind of getting start with season five, which is Ottoman Decline. Now, this episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at the website, bghistorypodcast.com, where you can also find you know, some blog posts, you can find images, lists of important characters in each episode, timelines, all kinds of stuff. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can reach me through the website or through the Facebook group. And, well, it's the day before Christmas Eve, so happy holidays to all of you. Thanks. <laughs>